You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So just about a week ago, the whole Western world was looking at what was happening in Europe, looking at what was happening in Brussels. We had people weeping. We had people changing their Twitter avatars to Belgian flags, peace doves, prayers for Belgium. I want to ask you, have you seen the same thing happening for Lahore, Pakistan? My guess is the answer is no. Now, Lahore, Pakistan, was the victim of a horrible terror attack. Last time I checked, more than 70 dead, more than 300 injured. Why? Because people dared to go to a park. Because people dared to go to Easter celebrations. And that is too much for some. That's too much for the people that are in this Taliban splinter group that has claimed responsibility. We'll get to that in a moment. It's too much for the jihadists. Now, what I want to talk to you tonight is about the international jihadist movement. Because if you look, if you look at what happened this past weekend, you will realize that all those people that say, well, you know, if Western countries would just get out of the Middle East, If Western countries would stop their interventionism, if Western countries blah, 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 then the terrorists would leave us alone. Explain that to the people of Lahore, Pakistan. Minister in the Pakistani government coming out today and talking about what a horrible, horrible event they had to deal with. This is an evil that is not merely affecting one country or one society but is affecting entire humanity. Affecting entire humanity. I would say that is correct. And my apologies, that was not apology. That was Tarek Fatimi, an advisor to the Pakistani Prime Minister, speaking with the BBC. Pakistan is a Muslim-majority country. Now, Lahore has always had a large Christian community. Lahore is also the cultural capital of Pakistan. They were still attacked. It didn't matter that this this took place in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. They're not out there interfering with Israel. And why do I bring up Israel? Because we keep being told, well... The jihadists, I mean, it's just because of the question of the Israelis and the Palestinians, and if we would just deal with that. No. No. That is not why they're killing people. That is not why, as Joy Malbin is reporting on CTV, they are out there massacring people. The bomb went off as families gathered on Easter Sunday, enjoying picnics and fairground rides. Among the injured, terrified children as they were rushed off to hospital and bodies one after another removed on stretchers. Overwhelmed hospitals declared a state of emergency 
This man says he tried to help. I carried 20 children to hospital and moved three bodies to a police car, he says. Lots of Christians come here. Lots of Christians do apparently go to this park. But it was not just Christians. There were Muslim families there because from discussions I've had with people from the area, there generally is not an issue between Christians and Muslims there. But the jihadis, they don't care. They don't care if you're a Christian, if you're a Muslim. If you disagree with them, you deserve to die. Again, as Joy Malbin says, at CTV News, a, a Taliban splinter group, Taliban Pakistani Taliban splinter group, claiming responsibility. A Taliban splinter group says the timing is no coincidence, telling a news agency they carried out the attack, targeting the Christian community, celebrating the Easter holiday. Well, this group is led by a breakaway leader, not quite as bad as the Islamic State, but the same agenda and the same intolerance towards minorities. Most of the victims, women and children, and in the chaos and confusion, desperation to find loved ones. I can only imagine the desperation. I am sure that you can only imagine the desperation. But the fact is, this is an Islamic Republic. But if you are the wrong type of Muslim, you are still going to be targeted by the jihadis. And I'm trying to draw your attention to this because I want to put to bed this false argument put forward that if we leave them alone, if we leave the Middle East, if we abandon Israel, if we do all of these things, that they will leave us alone. Pakistan has nothing to do with Israel. Also this weekend, an attack at a soccer game in Iraq. Is soccer suddenly anti-Islamic? That I didn't know about this. Because Muslims have been playing soccer for as long as soccer's been around. Or shortly thereafter, at the least. But in Iraq, again, a majority Muslim country, attacked on the weekend. By who? By the Islamic State. In Nigeria on the weekend. Boko Haram, so I believe it was 32 were killed in the, uh, the attack on the soccer stadium. In Nigeria, Boko Haram killed uh, four on the weekend in what were essentially sniper-style attacks. Why? Yeah, the people, they, they were just not Muslim enough. By the way, I believe Boko Haram stands for reading is forbidden. That should tell you something about the view of the jihadist warriors. Because that's who we're up against. That is what we were up against. In Yemen, 26 people killed in a roadside bomb set off at roadblocks. Is Yemen a big ally of Israel? And I don't know. Are they a Western democracy trying to impose their views on Middle Eastern countries? No. And yet this is the narrative that continually plays out. If we leave them alone, they'll leave us alone. No, they'll kill us last. That's all. The jihadi warriors have an agenda. 
That is submission. Submission by everyone to their viewpoint. We'll go to a very small example. In the weekend, or on the weekend, a Muslim shop owner in Glasgow, Scotland, ran a, a small store, like a convenience store in Shawlands District. It's not far from where some of my family live. Well-liked, loved even, by those that went to his shop. He was stabbed to death within hours of posting a video on social media wishing his customers and friends Happy Easter. The man in custody is another Muslim man who took offense that a Muslim would wish somebody Happy Easter. That's insane. But that is the jihadist mindset. That is what we're fighting against. You look at the attacks in Iraq, in Yemen. I forgot about one. There was one in Syria. There were two suicide bombs going off in Syria on the weekend. Are you going to tell me that Syria is some kind of Western democracy trying to impose its values on the Middle East and, 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 and an ally of Israel? No. These arguments put forward are garbage. The goal of the jihadists, be they al-Qaeda, Taliban, a Taliban splinter group, or ISIS, is subjugation. They have their interpretation of Islam. They have their view. And they say their view is that we will all submit. And if we don't, then we will die. They don't care what religion you profess. They only care whether you will submit to them. We're going to be facing big questions on the issue of terrorism over the coming days and weeks. But I want you to remember this. The jihadis have an eye not just on the Middle East, not just on Western capitals, not just on places like Brussels and Paris, and now London and Berlin, which have been named in videos. But they have a goal of world domination. Can they achieve it? Scarily, I think they can. If we don't stand up properly. If we're so worried about not offending people. President Barack Obama, let me play this last clip. President Barack Obama, in his weekly address to the American people, said that, you know, there's a lot that he's doing to combat ISIS, but there's another weapon that can be used. As we move forward in this fight, we have to wield another weapon alongside our airstrikes, our military, and our counterterrorism work, and our diplomacy. And that's the power of our example. Our openness to refugees fleeing ISIL's violence, our determination to win the battle against ISIL's hateful and violent propaganda, a distorted view of Islam that aims to radicalize young Muslims to their cause. In that effort, our most important partners are American Muslims. That's why we have to reject okay. any attempt to stigmatize no, Muslim Americans. No, and no, no, no. I have not now and never have said we should not be helping refugees. But Barack Obama going on national television, on national radio, because this address is carried across the United States every Sunday, and using his Easter Sunday address to say, we can show by example 
we can do this by showing ISIS who we are by accepting refugees. They don't care. They don't give a hoot. They only care, will you submit? And if not, how can we kill you? That's what it is. You're not going to convince the jihadis to lay down arms because you brought in refugees. That is simply not the case. We need to wisen up. We need to open our eyes, open our ears, look at what's really happening, listen to what is really being said to us by the people carrying out these attacks. Again, be they ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, splinter groups, listen to what they're saying. They tell you clearly why they're doing it. We just need to be willing to listen and then act. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Oh, it's truly sad. Jonathan Goldsmith. Jonathan Goldsmith. You may not know his name, but you'd know his face and you would know his voice. Stay thirsty, my friends. Yes. The man who was the pitch man for Dosekes beer. I think I'm saying that right, but really I don't care. Dosekes, I'm being told. I don't care. As long as I get cerveza, if I ever end up in Mexico, I'm happy. Right? Well... He he was let go as the spokesman, but now he's joining the Make-A-Wish Foundation out of Vermont, and he's going to do public service announcement for uh, the organizations. And, of course, you know, there's Make-A-Wish organizations across the continent. We've got them here in Ottawa, and, uh, and I know that this radio station has been involved with uh, some of those in the past. So good for him, just bad for the beer. He's the only guy that ever made me want to drink this Mexican beer. I don't know why they dropped him. He's 77 years old, New York born actor, but he could make young guys want to drink beer. Odd. Rob Ford. I'm tired of Rob, be- Rob Ford being called the controversial mayor, former mayor of Toronto. But he, he's lying in state, I guess you could say, at Toronto City Hall. Now, I covered Pierre Trudeau's funeral. I was there when Pierre Trudeau laid in state at Montreal City Hall, then he came by train to Ottawa, then back to Montreal, and the radio station I worked at at the time was a short walk from his uh, from the Notre Dame Basilica, where the funeral was held. It's where all the big events happen in Montreal, in the Catholic world. But there wasn't this constant talk about Pierre Trudeau being controversial, but he was. He was controversial as well, and yes, Rob Ford had his demons. But he also did a lot of good, and I'm tired of him just being the controversial former mayor of Toronto. No, stop it. We're talking about his funeral. Well, people are coming out, and they're expressing their love and admiration. And I've told you before that I've never seen devotion to a politician quite like I saw to Rob Ford and his brother Doug when I was at the Ford Nation headquarters 
on October's uh, October 27th, 2014 for the uh, Toronto election results. Woman named Elena Daniels met Ford and, along with several family members in his office, and she can't say enough good about him. For me, he's the most humble politician I've ever met in my life. I've been an expat. I've traveled in the U.S. and in, in my own country, the Philippines. But for him to go out of his way, very humble, very down-to-earth, very people person. A very people person. That's how Rob Ford should be remembered. Let's keep that in mind. He was a man. He was a human being. Let's stick with that. Final story I want to bring to your attention tonight that needs a bit more exposure. That is that a coalition of business groups is calling on New Brunswick's government to lift their moratorium on hydraulic fracturing, otherwise known as fracking. Joel Richardson is the VP of New Brunswick, uh, the New Brunswick Division of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, and he is among the group calling for a lift on the ban, he says a shale gas energy needs to proceed in New Brunswick. Well, when you look at the unemployment levels being as high as they are, almost 10% unemployment in New Brunswick and uh, other areas in the region up over 25%, certainly there are a lot of families in New Brunswick that could uh, use the jobs at a time when our economy uh, is really in a significant slump. Families that could use the jobs, absolutely, but also a province that could use standing on its own two feet. Because New Brunswick, along with Quebec and Nova Scotia, and I believe Prince Edward Island, continue to refuse to develop the natural resources that lay under their feet and instead are determined to continue taking from the rest of the country. That is something that has to stop. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. I'm going to be speaking to a terrorism expert when we get back. More in moments. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We can go down the list of terrorist attacks. We can talk about um, Belgium last week, Brussels. We can talk about Paris. We can talk about Ottawa, St. Jean. We can talk about, let's go beyond Western democracies, and let's talk about Lahore, Pakistan. Let's talk about Yemen. Let's talk about what happened in Iraq on the weekend, what happened in Syria, what happened in Glasgow. As I said in the opening monologue, the reason that we need to pay attention to all of these is to realize that the idea that the jihadis are just interested in coming after Western targets because we're infidels or we're this or we're that or we support Israel or we you know, are, are not supportive enough of the Palestinians or this and that, it doesn't matter. Phil Gursky has been following the issue of terrorism. Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-like groups for many years. He spent, uh, Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, 30 years in the intelligence community, 15 with CSIS looking at groups like Al-Qaeda? That's right, Brian, yeah. Okay. Am I off base in saying that these narratives that keep coming out after every terrorist attack on the West, that if we just leave these people alone, they'll leave us alone? Well, no, you're absolutely right, because they hate everybody. You, you know, you, you look at the attacks in Pakistan on the weekend, 
and this was a, a Taliban sort of uh, splinter group, mm-hmm. and they claimed that they were hitting Christians. Okay, fine, but they actually took out more Muslims, and, and across the board, it's more Muslims than anybody dying. They hate you if, you if you're not like them. You can be Muslim, you can be Jew, you can be Buddhist, you can be Christian, you can be atheist. Because you're not like them, they hate you. That's the bottom line. You know, and, and the best example that I've seen of that was this shopkeeper in Glasgow, in Scotland, Ahmadiyya Muslim. His name was uh, Ahmad Shah. He was killed because he's lived in Scotland since the early 90s. Said he loves the country, wanted to wish everyone a happy Easter. Another Muslim man walked in, he was angry at him and knifed him to death. And, and you look at that and you say, okay, wh- how does this mindset come about? Well, you know, and that's a really sad story, but to me it's not a surprise because as far as the, as the jihadis, as you call them, the extremists are concerned, the Ahmadis, who are Muslim, by the way, are not Muslim because they have a 19th century prophet. Therefore, they're apostates. Therefore, they deserve to be killed. You know, the kill list is long because, mm-hmm. again, it's you don't think like me, you don't deserve to live. And th- this is part of what frustrates me, I guess, is the not enough people know what you and I are talking about now. And I know that this audience is pretty well informed on these issues. But the average Canadian, they hear um, Muslim, they hear Christian, they think there's conflict all the time. There's not. You know, from the people that I know who know Lahore, Pakistan well, they say there's not a big, you know, friction, generally speaking. But on the weekend, there absolutely was. Yeah. See, that's the problem, though, is that, you know, we we associate this this violent, hateful movement with, with all Muslims, and that's categorically false, because as I said, the vast majority of victims are Muslims. And so, you know, the, the key is actually is the vast majority to get along with us. It's not, it's not shunning them and, and closing our borders, because they're not the problem. The problem are the, are the are guys that have this hateful ideology. So how do we combat that then? I mean, you know, let me ask you bluntly, the question or the, um, the prescriptions put forward by Far too many people. If Canada stopped backing Israel tomorrow, would Canada no longer be a target for the jihadis? Oh, uh, heavens no. We, we, there's so many things that they're pissed off about. You know, our mission to Afghanistan, the fact that we had CF-18s in Iraq. You talked about, you know, Saint-Jean, Ottawa. Those two attacks were carried out by people who were angry at us for going to Iraq. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So is there a solution? Not a very easy one. All right. So if we pulled out our uh, support for anything going on in Afghanistan or Iraq, would they if we folded up tents and came home and left the Middle East alone, would they leave us alone? No, not, not these guys. So, you know what? In the end of the day, it, it'd be one less irritant that they could hang over us and say, look, you're, you know, here's what you're doing. You're over here killing our people. But as I said, the list is long. And these guys are, or will not be satisfied until their system reigns supreme. And the only way they're going to do that is through violence. So, no, it doesn't really matter what we do. It's kind of too late. And I would argue in some ways it was always too late. The, um, the Clarion uh, Project, which is an American outfit that, um, that covers issues related to national security, terrorism, uh, from a, an American perspective, they had a piece on the weekend trying to look at there was a big commemoration on the weekend of the Easter 1916 uprising Mm -hmm. in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so they said, okay, is there a difference between what used to go on with the IRA and what's going on with the jihadis? And they said, well, with the IRA, you could actually negotiate. And in the end, that's what brought an end to the violence there. They had political aims. Mm -hmm. 
as far as I can tell, there's no political aims for the jihadis other than domination. Well, they have an aim. The problem is it's not negotiable. So, you know, the, the sort of spiritual founder of al-Qaeda was a Palestinian called Abdullah Azam, and he was killed in Peshawar, Pakistan, in 89. And his famous quote was, and, I, and this is a quote, no negotiations, no talks, no conferences, jihad and the rifle. In other words, I'm not going to sit down and talk to you because there's nothing to talk about. I'll get my way, I'll get my way violently. So you're right. In, those, in that case, there is no one to sit down with. Oh, okay, so essentially it's submit or die. Essentially for these guys, yeah. Okay. So wh- why does this idea persist? I mean, I played a clip off the top of the show, President Obama saying, you know, if we show we're nice to refugees, this is a weapon against ISIS. And I thought, you know, that's a nice political line. And, and not to d- take away from helping refugees that need help, but, but to me saying if we're nice to refugees, is that's a weapon against ISIS. To me, that's just foolish. Well, it, it is in a way, and in a way it's not. So I don't think that ISIS really gives a damn whether or not we're nice to refugees. Okay, which is the point I was making. Right. But I think, you know, the long-term solution to this, and, I, and long, I, I'm talking generations here. I'm not talking, you know, by next Saturday. We have to establish a society where tolerance is the norm. And I think if we have a multicultural society like we have here in Canada, which for, that's a, it works pretty well, right? We have our problems, but it works pretty well. That's the model because our model is so far superior to ISIS's model that they're not even in the same universe in terms of playing the game. So if we develop generations of people that that say to ISIS, you know what, you guys are wrong, then we don't have future terrorism. Now, I'm I'm being a little bit, you know, I'm I'm kind of glossing over some details here, but that's the key, right? You don't want to feed the generations down the road. Okay. Let me bring this back to um, a conflict that I'm a bit more personally aware of, including having unfortunately known people involved in it, and that is the, the Irish conflict. Right the IRA would get in trouble when they no longer had the support of the local population mm-hmm. because they couldn't get safe houses. They couldn't, you know, if they if they made a wrong move like they did with the, um, the Amal bombing, right. um, people would get angry and be like, no, no, if you want to take on the British soldiers, that's fine, but you kill kids, we're done. And people would no longer provide them safe houses. They would no longer allow them to move their weapons. Is that essentially the same thing that if we get the Muslim population on side in various areas, I mean, and and this is obviously a worldwide thing, that then it becomes, okay, they're going to withdraw support. They're going to withdraw the safe houses. They're going to withdraw the the cover. You know what? It can't hurt. I'm not sure it is a comprehensive solution. So look what happened in Belgium, right, last week. Those guys were living in that neighborhood probably pretty openly for, for months, if not years. So the question that I ask is, well, why didn't anybody say anything? And, and there's fear, and there's lack of trust of security services, and there's all kinds of things there. So it's not a perfect solution, but you're absolutely right. If these guys can't hide openly amongst their own people and don't get the support, then it's going to be harder for them to act. But we have to get to that point where communities and neighbors feel confident and say, hey, you know what? I don't like this. And as a result, I'm going to call the cops or call security service or call somebody. We're not quite there yet. Okay. Phil Gursky, thanks for joining me tonight. My pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Phil Gursky is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants here in Ottawa, former strategic analyst at CSIS, specializing in radicalization and terrorism. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments.
Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I've talked to you a lot about Rob Ford over the last few days, which is weird for Toronto Mayor dying. Are we really going to be having people commenting for days on end about the passing of Barbara Hall? No. No, not going to happen, even though short horrible term as the head of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Um, well, that could a lot could be said about that woman. But it's not going to happen. Maybe Mel Lastman, June Rollins, do you care? Do you know who she is? Will you recognize the name? No. But people know and they recognize Rob Ford. Played you the clip earlier of the woman from the Philippines who called him the best politician she ever dealt with. And as she said, she's traveled extensively, met a lot of politicians. Rob Ford brought out that type of response from people. Earlier today, Evan Solomon interviewed Kevin O'Leary on the issue of Rob Ford and just an interesting personal insight from O'Leary on Rob Ford and his trip down to Los Angeles to go on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Rob Ford, just I want your thoughts on this. He's lying in repose in Toronto City Hall. Am I right, Kevin, to think when he went on Jimmy Kimmel... When he went in L.A., remember that famous moment that you were in L.A. at the time with him, mm-hmm. not with him. Yep. Well, can you tell us about that encounter? What happened was I was I went to the Oscars uh, with Adrian Montgomery, a pretty well-known Canadian businessman who wanted to introduce me to James Villeneuve, who's taking over Canadian Consulate General of L.A. Because you know I lived there three months of the year shooting Shark Tank, and I wanted to know the Canadian Consulate for various reasons. So we set that up. We went to the consulate the day he was switching over and he was moving in. So Adrian and I and the consulate, James, were there. And the phone rang. I'd been in a dialogue with Doug Ford because we were trying to get Rob on to the Langolary Exchange. And my back door was with his cell phone. I was talking to him about negotiating his appearance with Amanda and I at the CBC. This was the raging, if you remember, it was the cocaine videotape period. Right. And Doug reached out to me and said, hey, listen, you just did Kimmel last week. All the brothers are here in L.A., Let's meet up after we finish taping, because Jimmy has this big party for staff and and guests, and it kind of ends around 10 o'clock at night, and then you go off somewhere into Hollywood. So we agreed to meet at a hotel, and all the brothers and I, and um, I brought my wife Linda with me, and we got to the hotel. I'll never forget this, Evan. I will never forget this, because I've been living in, I've been working in Hollywood for a long time now. I got to the hotel. There were hundreds of people outside with security and police holding them back shouting, Rob Ford, Rob Ford, like a political event in Hollywood. You couldn't get near the door. I had to text Doug to come and get us and bring us in. It was chaos. Crazy. Everybody wanted to meet him. And I knew right then that he had transcended Canadian politics and become part of the culture of Americana. There's never been a politician like him in Canada. And we talked about it that night. I said, you know, Rob, this is something I've never seen before. You're getting more press than any Canadian prime minister in history. You have put Toronto on the map. Now, you may argue that it was on negative reasons, but the truth is we're the fourth largest city in North America, and most Americans don't even know where Canada is. Well, they know now because of Rob Ford. 
And what was it like? I mean, here that was at the height of it. I mean, even Jimmy Kimmel said, you got to be careful. You're going to die uh, because of his addictions. Uh, now, of course, he's tragically died of cancer. But what was that encounter with Rob like? It was, it, I'd never seen like it. It was inside the hotel was chaos. They needed security there. There was a lineup of people that wanted to take a picture with him, get his autograph, just meet him. I sat with him for a while in a booth, and we talked about it, and I said, welcome to reality for you. This is unbelievable. You've done something that's never happened before. He was sanguine about it. He was calm. He talked about the Kimmel experience, how much energy that was required, because it's not. people think it's easy to go on a talk show. You're pretty, when you come up that elevator on the Kimmel set, you're freaked out. He did a great job there because you're talking to millions of people. And I think what's really interesting about that whole experience for him is it made him realize, I think, that he was proud to be a Canadian in some ways because it was really the Canadian flag that he was waving down there. It was, it was, I have a new respect for him, I've got to tell you. You do. I, I you just, know, I mean, some people think, I, look, his, uh, everybody, when someone passes, he's a human being, he's not a politician. So let's speak of him as a politician, not as a human being. Was he, you know, in the end, a disgraced politician because of his actions and, and politically, in, in the end, a burnout? Or, or do you say do you have new respect for him politically, despite of you know his lies, his addictions, and all that? I do have new respect for him. Amanda and I used to argue about this all the time because I would show her that around the chaos around him, his adversaries were so frustrated that his popularity continued to grow regardless of how crazy his world got. And my point was, there's very few politicians that make that personal connection with people the way he did. And you can say he had his demons, and of course he did, but that only humanized him to thousands of people that really wanted him to lead them. And I I think it's a rare, 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 rare trait, and most politicians would die to have it. They just never get it. I learned a lot from him. You did. Just I got less than a minute here, Kevin O'Leary. You learned, I mean, here you are thinking about making a run yourself, entering the political fray. What lessons did you learn from Rob Ford? If you really want to lead people and be an effective leader, you have to be a human being to them. You've got to expose yourself to them. They have to understand you're real. And even in your times of trouble, you've got to stay that way. You've got to be real. You, you, can't, you can't fake it. If any politician today doesn't understand that after watching the Rob Ford phenomenon, you know, he, he was, a, he was a, a human being and people reached out to touch him because they felt his pain in his time of need, but in his own way, he was honest with them. There's a lot that there's a lot that every politician can learn from a, a page of his book. He was a powerful, powerful politician, the most populist leader Canada has ever seen. Kevin O'Leary on Rob Ford, who lies in repose right now at City Hall. Kevin, great to have you on the program, and and what a fascinating tale, an inside story about. Rob Ford that night at the height of the scandal and what it was really like, the impact he had. Kevin, great to have you on. Take care. That's Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank, chairman of O'Leary Financial. Kevin O'Leary on with Evan Solomon earlier today. And in case you thought that I was effusive or I was, you know, some kind of Rob Ford cheerleader, you heard it from Kevin O'Leary. Until you experience it firsthand. I'm not sure you can comprehend what being around the Ford Nation is like. And in this case, it was was down in L.A. And he saw this love that people had for him. 
Rob Ford transcended politics. He went across demographic lines. He went across ethnic lines. It's really annoyed me over the years listening to people talk about, oh, Ford Nation, a bunch of angry old white guys. And as I always say, when did being white and old become a bad thing? But beyond that, that was not Ford Nation. Ford Nation looked like Toronto. And if I was down in Toronto this week, you can bet your bottom dollar that I would be going by Toronto City Hall to pay my respects to the man. Doug will be around for a while. He will be involved in politics in one way or another, and people are talking about him as a uh, possible you know, leadership contender for the Conservatives. Probably not at the federal level, but he might, he might look at running provincially again. But that's a story for another day. Today, the story is about Rob Ford lying in repose at Toronto City Hall. Great interview with Evan Solomon and Kevin O'Leary on Rob Ford. Uh, we'll talk about Kevin O'Leary in a couple of minutes. Uh, Stephen Taylor is going to be dropping by to talk about potential leadership races inside the Conservative Party and what's going on. We just got a few seconds left, and I, I have to take a moment to pay tribute to this. A woman named Mother Angelica has died. This is a woman who was the leader of a small uh, group of nuns in Alabama, not exactly a Catholic hotbed, and she decided that she would start a a television station aimed at Catholics out of the garage of the nuns' convent in 1981, and it is now a global media empire, and she passed away at the age of 92 on Easter Sunday. God is everywhere, and you have to be in the light to see God. Those in darkness see something else. Mary Mother Angelica, an unlikely media mogul. May you rest in peace, Mother. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I just never want to talk when this song's playing because I just want to hear the music. You've changed, man. You used to be about the music. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. Stephen Taylor joining me now, conservative pundit, um, pontificate. What else do we call you? (laughs) Just call me Steve. Just call me Steve. You can call me Al. Uh, So Stephen Taylor, is uh, he's long been around the conservative movement and dropped in to talk about a new poll coming out. Now, it's it's from Abacus Data, and last time I was on the Abacus Data website, um, and long, long been a fan of the guys over at Abacus, but I don't see this poll up on their own website. But Bruce Anderson, who's one of the partners there, was tweeting this out. A new poll, and I'm, guess, I'm guessing, Stephen, that it's coming out tomorrow, right? Well, yeah, he uh, put out the teaser tweets uh, tonight just to get, you know, the Ottawa tongues wagging, I guess, about the, yeah, the information. So, so somebody has the full poll, not me. They're no longer my pollster. That's a, another story for another day. But they asked several questions about who would be the best conservative party leader. And the the rules are out now. Yeah. I mean, I've been talking to people on, when are you going to announce? Well, you know, we're waiting on the rules. Well, the rules have been out for a couple of weeks now. 
Yeah, but we'll nobody's s- officially announced. Yeah, but people are going to drag their feet until I think you have to be in. Um, I think six months before the actual date, or you have to at least have a membership in the party, <laughs> at least well, six okay. months so before. That, so that, that's someone specific that we're talking about. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But so you think that they're waiting because it, once they announce, then all the the rules about campaign spending and fundraising. Those come into effect, right? Well, it's like that old thing with, uh, you know, in the U.S. presidential race where you, they'll, you form they'll, an they'll exploratory tease, committee. They'll tease and say, you know, uh, there'll be like someone who's obviously going to run for president goes on, you know, the Ellen show or whatever and says and they're like, well, you know, are you going to run for president? And of course, when they actually say the words, I'm running for president of the United States, the federal elections, uh, the FEC comes into into play and then every dollar that they spend is suddenly you know, under the rules. So um, Canada has a, um, a similar framework, not exactly the same, but I think that people are keeping their powder dry for a variety of reasons. And uh, even uh, even someone that's not in the race yet keeping their powder dry, I'm pretty sure. So essentially, we know that some of these people are out there organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Kenney, who many had started to think, based on how he was acting, was not going to be in the race. Uh, he started to act like someone that, is interested now. I mean, just after the election, if you talk to Jason Kenney, he would say, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And it's a long slog because, you know, at best, it's four years before you become government. Maybe it's eight. You got to do a lot of rebuilding. But now he's sending out emails to supporters saying, hey, sign this petition. Mm-hmm. And it's data gathering. Right. We've seen we've seen uh, a few people uh, put out that call for uh petition signing and uh, name gathering uh, to to bolster their lists uh, to make their f- uh, appeal when they need to. Uh, but look, Jason Kenney, um, I think a lot of people would perceive him uh, to be, um, if not the front runner, one of the front runners. Not uh, according to the numbers. Well, we'll get into well, that but, in a minute. Okay, okay. But I think a lot of conservatives, and mm-hmm. that's who we're talking about here, would perceive him to be you know, one of the, one of the he was the right-hand man, essentially, of Stephen Harper through his government. And I think Jason Kenney is keeping his uh, powder dry if he is going to jump in the race, because why Why jump in early if you're going to take all the brickbats and uh, let people wear you down? The only reason why you get in early if you're perceived frontrunner is to blow away the field. If, for example, you are, um, the, everyone and their brother believes that if, if you were to jump, jump into a leadership race uh, to either be president of the United States, uh, GOP nominee, or leader of the Conservative Party, if you were to jump in and Everyone say, "Oh, it's already over. So and so's in. Why bother even like running as a you know a third tier candidate uh, in that race? Because you're just going to get blown out. So that'd be the only reason why to get in early. But if you're going to be a perceived front runner, it's probably good to wait as well, just so you can keep your powder dry, so you don't take a lot of slings and arrows early. All right, we'll get to these numbers in a moment. New numbers out from Abacus Data on the conservative leadership race. But what if you're not a front runner? What if you're considered one of the third tier? Do you get in early so that you can generate buzz, get your name out there? Well, Is yeah, that a strategy? I do think that uh, getting your name into the mix, I mean, some people are going to run just so that they are e- either considered for the next time when they're maybe a bit older, or a bit more uh, you know, gray in the hair. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm very gray in but, the hair. But, but to be considered um, as a serious candidate... Uh, when you're within striking distance of actually winning leadership, uh, it would be a good idea to get your name in the mix 
now. Someone like a Michelle Rempel, for example, who might not be... Who, who they're not even polling, which surprises mm-hmm. me. Well, she hasn't indicated really that uh, she ha- she's not making any noises about no. it. No, and, and um, people, people want her to run. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure where she is. Where she is how? In, in terms of where her mindset is. Is she uh, looking to run... Is she not looking to run? Yeah, I I don't I don't right. have that let, insight for you. <laughs> let's uh, well I'll I'll get that insight myself shortly. Yeah. I'll call Michelle. Uh, let's look at um, the Abacus Data poll. Who would make the best conservative leader? This is among all respondents. So mm-hmm. this means all respondents to the poll, both conservative leaning voters and people that don't vote conservative. We'll go to this, then we'll go through some others. So uh, from the bottom up to the top, Kelly Leach. Three percent. Michael Chong, six percent. Jason Kenney, eight percent. Tony Clement, nine percent. Maxime Bernier, ten. Lisa Rate, twelve. Kevin O'Leary, who we just heard on the airwaves a few minutes ago, eighteen percent. And Peter McKay, thirty-three percent. Now, among those who say that they would vote for the Conservative Party if an election were held today. Let's look at who they think would make the best conservative leader. Kelly Leach drops to 1%, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Michael Chon, 5%. Maxime Bernier drops to 5%. Tony Clement, 6%. Lisa Rate, 8 Jason Kenney jumps all the way up to 12% from 8 Kevin O'Leary's at 27 and Peter McKay's at 36 What do you make of those? Well, there are a few things to consider here. Um, this race is among uh, people who are... Um, running for the leader of the Conservative Party, but those that are voting for them are card-carrying conservatives. So, I mean, you can ask the whole field among all respondents, and you might get an interesting answer that might be based off of name recognition or a liberal either trying to cause trouble or trying to vote for the person they'd probably most like to see. So someone maybe on the center-left. Um, so, like, you're talking about me saying Stéphane Dion would make a great liberal leader back in 2006? Well, he just didn't get it done, from what I've heard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, but uh, as we go through these numbers, like, you've got the numbers for uh, people that lean center-right and also people that are right. Now, of course, one of the more impossible things for pollsters to do, and this is the actual gauge of where we're at, is to poll um, uh, members, uh, people who... Uh, will sign up for membership or who are already members. And, of course, nobody has that list except for the Conservative Party. So there might I don't see why they would do internal polling, but uh, that might be a more accurate reflection of this. A lot of what this is right now is name recognition. Mm-hmm. So somebody like, oh, everyone knows who Peter McKay is because he was in the last government. He was— When he's dreaming. He, he was a principal of the— uh, the merge. your girlfriend. He's dreaming. He's, he is quite dreamy, yes. Uh, and— uh, uh, Kevin O'Leary, um, of course, we all know his name uh, from uh, from yeah. the small screen. So, yeah, I, I used to work with a radio producer. All I had to, and, and I don't think she ever voted conservative in her life. But all I had to do was say, I was in a scrum today with Peter McKay. She was at one of the far off <laughs> radio stations when I was up on the hill reporting for a bunch of now bell stations. I was talking to Peter McKay today. You could hear her melt on the other end of the phone. That's what women. Well, are here like he's with got Peter facial McKay. symmetry, which I hear is important. So. I, uh, I, I know, <laughs> I know nothing. Uh, we'll get into when we come back. I'm uh, Brian Lilly speaking with Stephen Taylor, conservative pundit uh, on uh, on all things related to the leadership race. When we come back, I'll give you the the numbers for those who identify as being on the right and those that identify as being on the center right. 
And there's going to be some surprises in here. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. All right, the leader of the unofficial opposition, joined by Stephen Taylor here in the Ahal Anthony studio at News Talk 580 CFRA. Let me give you the numbers quickly, then I'll get Stephen's uh, views on some of the people that are running. New Abacus data, new Abacus data numbers out on. Who would make the best conservative leader? They asked several ways. They asked of all respondents. They asked those that would vote for the conservatives. They, then they asked, do you identify as being on the right wing? Do you identify as being center-right? So among those on the right, again, bottom to top, it goes Kelly Leach, 4%. Michael Chong, 7%. Tony Clement, 9%. Jason Kenney, 9% among right-wing voters. Lisa Raitt. 10%, Maxime Bernier, 10%, Kevin O'Leary, 25%, Peter McKay, 29%. We get to the center right, and this is where it gets really interesting. All of a sudden, let's skip all the bottom. Lisa Raitt drops to fourth and becomes 9%. Jason Kenney becomes 14 just behind Kevin O'Leary at 15 Apparently, he draws more support from the hard right than the center right. And Peter McKay is still at the top at 36 That's confusing to me because if you had said... Who would draw more support, you know, or where would Jason Kenney do better, center right or right? I would say right. Yeah. Well, here's the other important thing, too, is that, I mean, we, we talk about polls about, uh, you know, center right, uh, right wing uh, Canadians, but also this will come down to organizations as well. Who is best at selling uh, memberships, getting their team out there, scouring the nation, uh, getting people to sign up? as members of the Conservative Party, so that they can vote for uh, their candidate. Okay, so then let's talk about who's putting together a team. Um, just after the um, Conservatives held a Christmas party for the media, and full disclosure, I was there. I saw Tony Clement there. Uh, as people will remember, I sang uh, Friday I'm in Love with Glenn McGregor, um, now part of the Bell Media family. It was beautiful. It, it, it you know, brought a tear to many eyes as they wish we would stop. But <laughs> apparently at that meeting, Clement stepped out. I did not notice this, but apparently Clement stepped out back in December to take a call from organizers. So he has a team together, well, correct? Pretty convenient time to take a call from organizers when you're among the media yeah uh, maybe to get, get some uh, well, people talking, I mean, <laughs> most most of us were too interested in where the next free drink was coming from ah, to yes, notice. well yeah, christmas after all uh but yeah let's talk about who's putting together uh, teams um mm-hmm. for example yeah i mean you heard you you have evidence uh, uh tony clement is, has put together a team i know maxime bernier is, uh, you know, um, making calls to uh, professionals. I know that... I, I know many of the people that are involved in Bernier's yeah, campaign. Yeah, so he, I know he has an organizing committee together. Mm-hmm. He does. He certainly does. I know Michael Chong uh, has a team, uh, at least in the early stages of a team. Uh, and certainly uh, he is looking uh, uh, to run. We saw him at the uh, the Manning Center conference uh, 
uh, g- give uh, his vision of of conservatism uh, to the uh, the people there. Uh, Kelly Leach, I know, has been organizing since for- forever. It seems so yeah. she's interesting because, from what I understand, Nick Cavallos is behind her. Nick Cavallos is a Toronto-based pollster, a man who helped Rob Ford win. The mayoralty back in 2010. Yeah, I would say it was Nick's genius that uh, got Rob uh, into uh, the mayor's seat uh, so, that, that first time, yeah. And, and and Nick knows his way around politics. He, he's not a dumb man at all. So he he's quite the heavy hitter for her to have in her campaign, especially when she keeps polling in the single digits. Mm-hmm. Well, look, um, organization becomes, like I said, very important. Um, it's going to be about... Uh, you know, making calls, having uh, lists that you already have uh, to to reach out to known conservatives, to buy memberships, to make their your appeal uh, for your candidate, and really the be- the people with the best call center, uh, the best uh, you know boots on the ground are going to be the ones uh, that are going to have a significant advantage in this race. And, the, oh. and Nick and Nick Kuval certainly brings that. I mean, he's got. You know, his own, like professionally, he, he has his own call center and he does uh, polling. That's what he does for a living outside of uh, when there's the occasional political contest in Canada. So, All right. In every single segment of all respondents, those that would vote conservative, those on the right, those on the center right, Kevin O'Leary comes in second. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to ask you to say whether Kevin's a good candidate, bad candidate. I'm on the record. He's the only one on the whole list where I'm on the record saying, I don't think he should run. I think he's a really interesting guy. I think he's got some great ideas. I think he can do more outside of the system than he could do in, at least in the short to medium term. So I don't think he should be in. I think he should be trying to force issues and agenda. But he shows up at between 18 and 20-something percent. That's by name recognition. Mm -hmm. For someone like him, and people keep comparing him to Trump, I don't say he's like Trump. I think he's... He's smarter. He's more sophisticated than Trump. But how does it's more difficult for someone like him who doesn't have an organization within the conservative movement. It's not like the states. You've got to sell memberships to win. Yeah. And look, uh, people might say, you know, uh, you know, candidate with a a, who might be a billionaire uh, could just walk in and and buy buy uh, the uh, the leadership. Well, you can only self-fund apparently up to uh, $25,000. Uh, you can only wow. give yourself, I think, a $25,000 loan even. Uh, but then everyone else, you have to register just like um, standard politics in Canada, $1,500 maximum per person. And yeah. you, you can no longer have cash payments for memberships in the Conservative Party. Right. It's $25 to join. Yeah, and they raise the price a, too. It's got to be a check or a credit <laughs> card. They're really raising that threshold uh, well, to be well, a member, yeah. Well, because in, in their past leadership races, in the NDP, in the Liberals, we've all heard the stories. All of a sudden, somebody hands in 250, 1,000 membership applications and a pile of cash. Right. And those people <laughs> did not put up that cash, that 10 or $15, on their own. Yeah, well, look, I mean, um, the Conservatives have had, let's say, a mixed relationship with uh, those who regu- regulate elections and uh, and uh, leadership races um, in the past. But we've also seen Elections Canada, for example, uh, you know, problems with uh, liberals uh, during their leadership race and how, how money and loans uh, were either uh, acquired or paid back or not paid back. So I think the Conservative Party is... If they are raising the threshold and they are sort of making it more difficult uh, to um, uh, 
you know, pay for membership by having, you know, that, that, that paper trail, uh, I think they are doing it to avoid a, a lot of those problems. Also, to prevent sort of those paper members who will disappear the next day uh, because they don't care about conservatism at all. We, I, I remember Paul Martin when he was uh, inaugurated leader of the Liberal Party. There were 400,000 members. A short time later, there were none. Yeah. So th- <laughs> this can happen in every party. Uh, we got less than 30 seconds left, Stephen. Quick question. Does Peter McKay come back? Uh, I think he's happy to have his name in the mix. I think he's happy to uh, keep it uh, near the top of the uh, the pile. Of course, he is someone who also has the benefit of either keeping his powder dry or coming in early and running a blowout uh, introduction mm-hmm. announcement. Like, hey, I'm running. Everyone get the heck out. Um, so I think he's keeping his powder dry because like, we really haven't seen any other action on it. But it's interesting. The top two, in my view, of uh, of McKay and O'Leary, neither one of them necessarily benefits personally I don't from think coming o- back into it. I don't think O'Leary's in because he's got this brand of being Mr. Winner. I win at everything I do. I, I'm a I'm a deal maker. I don't lose. If, if he were to come in and, and run and lose, it would be very damaging to his ordinary brand as someone who wins for a living Good in point. business. And like I say, I think he can do more just by being on the outside. Brian Lilly with Stephen Taylor. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, Caleb Howe on the big race down in the United States. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Well, from who will enter the conservative race in Canada to what's going on with the whole issue of the presidential race in the United States. Caleb Bow joins me now. He's a writer with Truth Revolt, senior writer at American Spectator, and also a contributing editor at Red State, and an all-around good guy. Caleb, welcome to the program. Thank you. i got, I got to ask you, before we get into the American race, you, uh, did you know or were you surprised to hear that Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank is looking at running to be the leader of the Conservative Party here and eventually Prime Minister of Canada? I did not hear that. The <laughs> website? Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. How about that? No, yeah. I didn't hear that. Yeah, Mr. Wonderful on ABC, you know, uh, he makes all the deals on Shark Tank. He's looking at running. He's Canadian. He lives in Boston and L.A. most of the time. <laughs> but looking so at So that's com- what you were talking about with the uh, the with, brand of always winning, huh? Yep. Yeah. So he, a, a lot of people are comparing him to Trump, but he's a bit more nuanced than Trump and a bit. That's that's not super hard. but Yeah, not super hard. Want to ask you um, the before we get into get you know jumping on Trump, jumping jumping on Cruz. There's a feud going on between the two of them. Let's talk about the Democrats because they okay. don't they don't get enough sunlight shone upon them. And we've got a crazy old socialist, yes, and a crazy old socialist wannabe right. named Hillary Clinton because she's moved to the left to try and stave off Bernie Sanders. Apparently, so. What's the deal with the latest story? Hillary Clinton has said, I won't do any more debates with you until you change your tone, young man. Right. What is this? Well, I, look, the only reason that this is even still ongoing is to keep Democrats in the news. I mean, he, he swept the popular vote 
this weekend, and it means absolutely nothing because of the system that the Democrats use with the superdelegates. It's totally meaningless. Okay, so superdelegates, that's the corrupt system where she picks up more delegates even though he wins popular vote. Right, in, in virtually every situation. And uh, their superdelegates are, of course, you know, they're, they're big names. They're big famous people, important people to the party or political pundits, um, heads of activist groups and things like that. And they get together and decide who, who they're going to back, and their vote counts more. So really who wins the popular vote in the Democratic uh, caucuses and primaries doesn't matter that much. Uh, I mean, it gives you momentum. You have to have a certain number of states in order to make it to the convention, and there are delegates apportioned. But in the end, uh, if you pick up all the superdelegates, you're going to be the nominee, and that's the situation with Hillary right now. Uh, All right, just just to put numbers on what you're saying, Caleb, and I'm speaking with Caleb Howe from Truth Volt Red State. Uh, Hillary Clinton currently has 1,712 pledged delegates. Of those, 1,243 are regular delegates that you get from winning a primary or caucus, but 469 are superdelegates. Right. Sanders is only a few hundred actual delegates, pledged delegates behind her, at 975, but he only has 29 superdelegates. This is the most corrupt system I've ever heard of. That's why she has the freedom to, to make a show, to make theater. I mean, she's, you know, she's courting controversy and trying to play power cards uh, to keep herself in the news and seem like she's got the upper hand. And the only thing she really has to fight with, Bernie, is the perception that people like him more and the perception that he gets more popular vote, which, of course, he just did. So all she has to do is play the gender card um, coming out of the weekend where she was down in, in popular votes to uh, to regain the moral advantage within her party. But he just won the popular vote in... Uh, Alaska, Hawaii, Hawaii, and Washington State. Washington, that's right. And, you know, it doesn't matter. She's still way ahead. That's right. And will remain so. Absolutely. Now, you, like me, are not a fan of Donald Trump. I am not. Okay. But at least I can say this. Donald Trump has to win the old-fashioned way. He has to win fairly. Right. He's not winning Chicago-style like Hillary, uh, where it's corrupt. As much as I may not like Donald Trump and may think Ted Cruz is the better candidate, he still has to go through and win state by state by state by state. And he's doing it. Right. But he's not happy about it because part of the rules here are if he gets there without the majority, if he gets there with um, a plurality but not a majority, uh, it's not handed to him on a silver platter. And because of that fact, because they believe that that might happen – they, they've been on the news a lot. All of his surrogates have been on the news, and they've been saying, you know, the, well, the people aren't going to accept you stealing this. They aren't going to like it. There could be riots. They literally said the word riot. They That's said riots? Yes, riots. There will be riots if, uh, if you don't give him the nomination when he gets to the convention, even though uh, by rule – by the way, it's always worked. If he shows up without the majority, he doesn't just get it because that's not how it works. It's not a plurality. Hey, Gerald Ford, when he was a sitting president, did not get the nomination handed to him. He had to go through a first ballot. First ballot, that's right. To find out that, yes, in fact, he had more uh, delegates than, than Ronald Reagan did. But it wasn't known going in. Right. So, I, I honestly don't understand why... Trump surrogates and Trump websites like Breitbart are pushing that narrative in the first place because I guess they're afraid that people are going to try and uh, turn delegates, and certainly people are going to try that. But if he goes in, 
he's the big deal maker, right? He's the guy that makes big deals. He's the guy that accomplishes things. He's the guy who gets stuff done. So I would think that their narrative would be Donald Trump's going to go in, and if he doesn't have it at the first round, he's just going to make it happen. He's going to make it uh, after the first ballot. He's going to make the deals and get the delegates his way. So, I mean, if he can't do that, I'm not sure what brand he's selling himself on to the to America that he's well, such a great deal maker. L- like Stephen was saying about um, Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, he, he is the guy that always wins. So maybe that's why O'Leary doesn't enter because he doesn't want to damage that. Just adding up the um, the delegates here, and Trump has 739 delegates. Uh, you need just over 1,200 to win, correct? Right, 1,247. 1,247, okay. So he's got 739. If you added up Cruz, Rubio, and Kasich together, you've got 774. Cruz has 465. So he's well back. Cruz is not going to win walking into the convention. That's right. But if all of those other delegates said, we want to stop Trump, at this point, he does not have 50 percent. Right. If you take uh, those – if you take the votes and consider them non-Trump or anti-Trump votes, uh, you know, he's behind in people uh, – when it comes to people who do want him to be president, you have fewer than people who don't want him to be president, which is the whole idea behind having to have, have a majority when you come in there in the first place. That's the philosophical idea behind it. You come in there with the most people in the party, a majority of the people in the party supporting your candidacy, then you get it right off the bat. If you don't, then you have to work for it. Let me ask you about this. There is a big, big feud going on between Trump and Cruz right now. There is, yeah. And, and at one point, I thought these two guys could have worked together. Um, because on some issues, they're pretty darn close. Yes. But they have gotten very personal. Trump accusing Cruz of putting out uh, an ad with a you know, almost fully nude photo of his wife saying, right. vote for Ted Cruz, even though he knows that if Ted Cruz coordinated with the group that put that out, he would be breaking the law. Right. We're talking about Liz Mayer's pack, uh, Make America Awesome, That's I think right. she calls it. Yeah. That'd be breaking the law. So Cruz call, or Trump calls Cruz lying Ted, says he does this, and then puts out a photo, the worst photo he could find of Ted's Ted Cruz's wife, Heidi, looking awful next to a photo of his model wife. And I don't know about you, Caleb, but to me, that's going to play badly in the general election when it comes to women and voting. So if Trump wins. I think so. He, he made two mistakes there. One was first he said uh, he threatened Ted's wife, saying he was going to spill the beans on her, whatever that means. And then he did the the photo with the with her, you know, an unflattering photo and saying, you know, look at this dog compared to my gorgeous wife, which was a scummy thing to do. And he continues to accuse um, Ted Cruz. I think a lot of people are missing a couple of facts about the original ad. Not only did it come from the Make America Awesome pack, but the people behind Make America Awesome, uh, they've historically been against Ted Cruz. The only reason that they even mentioned him in a positive light was when he was the only person left. To oppose Donald Trump. They, they were behind Scott Walker originally. Originally they were, that's correct, yeah. And then, uh, you know, they shifted as Walker went out. But basically their their entire premise has been the whole time, whatever we have to do to stop Donald Trump, that's what we're going to do. At this point, that equals Ted Cruz. Prior to this, they, they, the people involved were uh, the opposite of Ted Cruz fans. If anything, the, the, minus Donald Trump, he'd be the person they'd oppose the most. Um, 
But that's the first point. And the second point is that uh, the I, – you know, actually, I just found there's an update on this. Um, I just found this story. That ad, which, by the way, I was going to say Make America Awesome only ran on Facebook and only in – Utah. In, only in Utah, right. Um, but that ad was originally part in GQ as part of Donald Trump's first failed presidential bid. So the first time he wanted to be president, this was part of the publicity <laughs> leading up to it. So wow, uh, I, I, we we got to end in a minute. But um, I have to say, looking at uh, real clear politics is which is where I look for all the polls and where things are going. Yes. Um, the latest numbers show uh, from a Fox News poll that Cruz is closing in on Trump. But then when you look at general election matchups, Trump versus Clinton, yes, it is still double digits um, out of the last one, two, three, four. Out of the last six polls, five of them are double-digit wins for Hillary. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that she can beat Trump easily. and that, that which, which I don't know which is scarier to me. Which one of them is scarier? Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of either, but I, I don't think it's possible. There's some superlatives that you just can't make. You know, are you more afraid of um, of being the subject of the devil or being the favorite of the devil? I mean, in both cases, uh, you're still working with the devil. So, all right, Caleb Howe. Uh, you can find him on TruthRevolt.org among many other places. Caleb, thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, Sheldon Clare from the National Firearms Association about the attempt to bring back a gun registry at the provincial level, why it's wrong, what they're doing to push back. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So just at the end of my interview with Caleb Howe, he mentioned that um, GQ has come out and said that mostly naked photo of Donald Trump's wife that was used in an ad against Trump by a super PAC was originally part of his failed presidential bid earlier on. And GQ said, yeah, that, that's what this was about. He was trying to push himself as a presidential candidate. And he wanted to promote how gorgeous his wife is. Now, I'll just sit here and as a man say, yeah, he has a good looking wife. So what? I don't think that's normally why people vote for a particular candidate. If it is, I don't know what the wives of all the other male candidates in the you know potential conservative leadership bids would be. But if it is. I'll just say that that Peter McKay is going to win. Former Miss Canada. I think he's going to win. If that's what we vote on, then that's what it is. Let's turn to the issue of the gun registry and whether it needs to come back. It has thankfully been done away with at the federal level. But unfortunately, it is not dead across the country because Quebec... And I think if I looked out the back window here from the Bell Media Market Mall, I'm pretty sure that I could look out the back window and see part of Quebec. 
and they want to bring the gun registry back. Sheldon Clare is the executive director. Sheldon, help me with your title. You're with the National Firearms Association, but I yes, don't actually know your title. I'm the, I'm the president. You're the president. president and chief executive officer. Okay. The NFA, one of the great gun groups across the country that is looking after your rights to own a firearm and uh, trying to educate the public as well, I'd say. Yes, thank you, Brian. It's really great to be here. So Quebec is bringing it forward, this idea of a provincial gun registry. Uh, I was speaking with the man that's trying to set up the resurrect the Conservative Party of Quebec, almost defunct, uh, Andre Poulin at the Manning Center conference, and he said, Brian, it is it is getting bigger and bigger in terms of law-abiding gun owners organizing to push back against this, and all the parties are feeling pressure. You are one of the few groups that that came out early on the pro-gun side to present to the Quebec legislature. Let's talk about what you presented and then talk about the issue of whether there's there's hope for pushing back against this. What what did you tell the legislature? Well, I think our, our purpose in uh, going toward, to the legislature and trying to be there early, and we were the first presenters, was we wanted to present a package that educated the legislators as to some of the myths and uh, errors in assumptions that they're that they're going to hear from other presenters who are going to speak in favor of the registry. I mean, we wanted to show that it really doesn't make any difference if you put a piece of paper that's a registration certificate, or for that matter, even a license beside someone, and say that this is somehow going to present uh, prevent crime. And our uh, representative at the uh, at the commission's hearings at the Quebec National Assembly was uh, one of our lawyers, Guy Laverne, who actually was our lead on the intervention that we did in making sure that the federal government did not have to give Quebec any of the, uh, the uh, registry da- data from the federal registry when it was destroyed. So he's a very knowledgeable uh, presenter, and we, we made sure we had a very good brief going forward to educate and make sure that these legislators understood that what they were doing was going to be, first of all, very expensive. It wasn't going to do what the claims uh, of it doing were it wasn't going to prevent crime and that there really were probably a lot of better ways that they could spend uh, their money than trying to bureaucratize the people of Quebec who have been suffering long enough uh, unfairly and uh, due to the results of a few individuals who already were licensed or had registrations uh, even when they carried out their nefarious acts the registration now- system is a failure and it's never going to work Sheldon, uh, the the original promise was uh, on the federal registry to be over a hundred million dollars, but once we take in fees and so on, it will actually only cost the taxpayers about two million. It, yeah, and the, it, the, in the, the end, it was close to two billion. Five or a billion dollars. Uh, I thought it was close to two billion once you added everything in. Well, it it, it depends how you calculate it. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear it's over a billion. And the original cost that Alan Rock told me when I sat with him in the Pan Pacific Hotel back in 95 was he said it would cost $2 million. And I, I, I mean, it's, it's a fantasy to think that they're going to be able to stick to any sort of a reasonable cost measure, particularly when this program does not work. It is not going to prevent anyone from doing anything bad. Uh, uh, having a registered firearm or even a firearms license does not prevent bad behavior. It does not prevent poor judgment. It, it simply doesn't prevent criminals wanting to do criminal things. All of this, all of this is going to do, 
all, all of this expense, all this expense will do is just take money away from programs that actually could help people and help save lives. For example, by increasing funding for wait uh, to reduce wait times in emergency facilities in Montreal, or to uh, better look after uh, uh, assessment and diagnosis uh, for a whole range of ailments and disease, and to help treat with me- treat uh, people with mental health problems. Uh, that kind of uh, uh, resource is, is, is what this money should go towards, not keeping a bureaucratic list of innocent people who merely have an interest in, in going hunting, collecting, well, uh, target shooting, and okay. so Okay, so before we run out of time, let me get you to answer this, um, this basic question, because you hear it all the time. I know you've heard it before. Yep. Well, you have to license your dog, you have to license your truck, why not your gun? Well, there's no criminal... Uh, penalty for not licensing your dog or your truck, uh, and you can certainly own a dog or a truck without a license. But uh, And again, the taxation is the reason for licensing your dog and your, your truck. Taxation was originally the reason for licensing your firearms. It has nothing whatsoever to do with preventing criminal activity. It, it, it just doesn't work, does it? No, it absolutely doesn't, Brian. Let's uh, let's talk about the the cost. Uh, Quebec is estimating three hundred and fifty million, or your estimate, sorry, is three hundred and fifty million dollars is what it's going to cost Quebec at minimum yeah, to build a gun registry. Right. Well, the the thing is, what they're they're relying on, or so they're saying, is that they're going to rely on people submitting information themselves. And as we know from the federal registry, which which it used a program of trained verifiers to try to ensure that the data going in was correct, it was resplendent with errors. And without having a uh, tremendous bureaucracy to make sure that the, the data that's going in is absolutely correct, uh, it's n- there's no way that it's going to cost what the government thinks it will cost. It'll, it has to cost a, a great deal of money to try to do this. And uh, given the large number of firearms owners in Quebec, uh, given the uh, resistance to this amongst firearms owners and, and people of intelligence, the, the, uh, the thing is not going to work. Well, thanks for it's pointing. It's going to cost a lot of money, and it's just it's it's money that should be spent on in other ways. Thanks for pointing out that there are a lot of firearms owners in Quebec. You know, people would tell me, uh, Sheldon, that uh, well, the poll, you know, Quebecers are in favor of the gun registry, and then you look at the polling data, and it's not yeah. it's never the case. Montreal, yes. Outside of that, everyone in the regions of Quebec owns an ATV, a fishing rod, a shotgun, and a boat. Yeah, there are many chasseurs and fishers uh, à la belle Provence. There are many hunters and fishers in Quebec. And th- these are people that are being unfairly targeted by the, the this legislation. And one of the things I think is really egregious, Brian, is that the Premier, without having heard the report from this commission, is already saying that this will be a whipped vote. That, I think that's absolutely uh, disgusting. We're out of time now, but that's proof, Sheldon, that your organization and your pressure is working. So keep it up. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Take care. Sheldon Clare, President and CEO of the National Firearms Association. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. (laughs) 
This weekend in Toronto, Friday night. This is a debate. I, I, I've got to find a way to get you some of the audio from this or maybe even go down and interview some of these guys. I don't know. The global refugee crisis, be it resolved, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. If you remember back to the election and the whole debate about the debates, one of the best debates was the monk debates on foreign policy. Well, this weekend, they're bringing in several people. On the pro side of bringing in people from around the Middle East and North Africa, it says... It is the worst humanitarian crisis since the Second World War. Over 300,000 dead in Syria, 1.5 million injured or disabled. 4.5 million people fleeing the country as refugees. In Syria is just one of a growing number of failed or failing states in the Middle East and North Africa. How should developed nations respond to human suffering on this mass scale? Do the prosperous societies of the West, including Canada and the United States, have a moral imperative to insist as many refugees as they reasonably and responsibly can? Or is this a time for vigilance and restraint in the face of a wave of mass migration that risks upending Western nations' openness, tolerance, and ultimately their very way of life? On the pro side, Louise Arbour. She's a former Supreme Court justice, regular nutter, I mean, regular leftist, um, you know, good Canadian that goes around the world telling everyone how to live. Not a big fan of Louise Arbour, in case you didn't know. Also on the pro side, Simon Shama. He is a man who some of you may know if you've watched some of the great BBC history pieces. He's been a part of that. But on the con side, our good friend Mark Stein. And also leader of the UKIP party, the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage. It's going to be fascinating. You want to call in and talk about that, where you stand on this, you know the numbers, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or 1-800-580-2372. Or maybe you want to call in and talk about the conservative leadership race, which I talked to Stephen Taylor about. Happy to have your thoughts on that. Who do you back in the conservative leadership race? Are you a Jason Kenney guy, a Peter McKay guy? Do you love O'Leary? Are you behind Kelly Leach or Michael John, Maxime Bernier? Are you you a libertarian getting behind Max? Give us a call, 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. Or maybe you want to comment on this. The fact that Canada is back, baby. Let's hear it. Let's cheer. Let's party because we're number 48. That's right, we're number 48, baby. Canada's back. Number 48 out of 50, man. Yeah. In case you didn't hear, in case you don't have a lot of liberal friends on uh, the Twitter, Justin Trudeau was named the 48th best world leader. Yeah, that's right. A list of the top 50 world leaders, the greatest world leaders put up by Fortune magazine. And Justin Trudeau's number 48. Let's hear it, everybody. Yeah! Yeah! Number 48. Yes! Canada's back. Fortune magazine loves us. Ugh. They're like Sally Fields when she won the Oscar. You like me. You really, really like me. Ugh. Among the people ahead of him, Bono. Because this is not a list, despite it being the 50 greatest world leaders, number one on the list, 
is Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. Number two is Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany. But also ahead of him, Bono and John Legend, a fine singer. Got to say, a fine singer, John Legend. He's ahead of him, but so is the mayor of uh, Riace, Calabria, which is a small town in Italy, the Calabrian district. It's about 2,000 people. He's ahead of him. Guess who else is ahead of Justin Trudeau on the list of 50 greatest world leaders? Well, I I believe, um, actually, I can't remember his name because he's not important, but he's the head of climate change policy for Uruguay. Trudeau wasn't just beat out by the president or the prime minister of Uruguay. He was beat out by the head of climate change policy, the junior executive in charge of washrooms. That's who he was beat out by. But don't worry, Canada's back, baby. Maybe you got thoughts on that. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. And, of course, the issue of the gun registry. Quebec's still trying to bring this dead horse back to life. Can you believe it? They think that by prosecuting and persecuting law-abiding gun owners that they'll somehow crack down on the guys that are committing crime with guns. Do you really think here in Ottawa, out at Jasmine Crescent, where they've had all these problems, or any of the parts of the city where we've had shootings, do you think that those guys register their guns? As I've told you, I used to work in Montreal. The last year I was there, there were more than 60 murders, and I swear I was present at the crime scene for more than half of them. Some of them because, well... I remember one, it was six or seven murders in one family in one day. Guy lost it. Killed his entire family. Then his business partner mistakenly showed up, killed him, then drove down to my neighborhood and killed his father-in-law. That was a happy day. You you get off work after covering all the other carnage. Then you get a call to say, uh, there's a crime scene around the corner from your house. Can you go to it? And it's the same same essential crime that happened just happened to be the father-in-law. Those guys did not register their guns. The Hells Angels did not register their guns. The Rock Machine did not register their guns. Where do you stand on any of this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. And finally, I want to put it out to you. The Western media focuses on acts of terrorism against Western countries, like what happened in Brussels last week. And that allows the idiots to come out and say, well, if we just left them alone, then they would leave us alone and everything would be happy and nice. And we just have to get out of Israel because, you know, it's like Israel, like that's the problem. Pakistan has nothing to do with Israel. Syria, not so much. Iraq, not really. Yemen, not at all. And yet those attacks were as deadly as Brussels. Explain it to me. What do you make of the fact that even the Islamic Republic of Pakistan is facing terrorist attacks from the jihadi warriors that want us to submit? Is it time for the media to stop paying attention to these dolts that tell us if we just got out of the Middle East, 
everything would be fine. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. You want to call in because you're far too shy? Or, sorry, you want to email in? Be on the news at CFRA.com. Or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. A little bit of Luke Bryan. I always put a T on the end of his name. I don't know why. Luke Bryan, country singer. He runs, um, I know we, we run some great contests for country music fans over at Country 94 uh, here at Bell Media Radio, but um, Luke Bryan runs this thing. He's done it for years now uh, called, um, oh, the name's just gone out of my head. Um Something about Playa. It's a it's a play on Playa del Carmen. He runs a country festival in Mexico at the resorts. And given, given how crappy the weather is here today, gray, cloudy, rainy, yeah, I'm thinking I could use a little bit of Mexico right now. But, I mean, not too much Mexico because Canada's freaking awesome. Have you heard? We're number 48. We are number 48. Don't you love it? Out of the top 50 world leaders, we're number 48! Woo! Just imagine Animal from the Muppets playing the drums as that happens. Ah, 48! Ah! Justin Trudeau ranked the 48th greatest world leader. The 48th world greatest leader. Liberals could not stop tweeting that out over the weekend. Now... He's not the greatest leader for actually doing anything. It's a bit like Barack Obama getting the Nobel Prize before he'd done anything. And then he actually did more in terms of warfare than George W. Bush did. And some of the members of the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, they wish they could take it back. You got thoughts on any of this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Also taking your calls on issues related to immigration, the war on terror, and the fact that, you know what, if we leave these guys alone, they're not going to leave us alone. That's the fact. And if you need proof of that, I'll run through all the Muslims that they killed on the weekend because they're not quite Muslim enough for the jihadi warriors. The People's Repu- Islamic Republic of Pakistan, not Muslim enough for the jihadis. What does that tell you? George, in the prior, you're on Beyond the News. Today, you know, one of my hobbies is... Uh reading predictions about things, eh? Okay. I studied that for years and years and years from when I was a kid. And you know, most people who predict things are sort of loony, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, now, on this immigration thing, do you know that the, uh, the this thing the massive illegal immigration would destabilize the Western countries was already predicted years and years ago? Um, try- Way back in the 1960s and the 50s and the 70s, it was already predicted this was going to happen. Trying to remember the name of the British politician that predicted it. No, the it. person that predicted that was Billy Myers, a UFO nut. Billy Myers? I don't know the name. Well, look him up. You'll, you'll find he actually predicted all uh, the stuff which, which the illegal immigration would destabilize the Western countries. 
way, way before. And he sent the letter to all the uh, uh, important people in the world. He sent us this letter to all of them, what, what, what the future was going to hold. I collect predictions and stuff. So I read all his predictions. And he, he, he was almost accurate on all, all the predictions he made. Eh? Uh, but he, he made he, a few errors, but, he, you know. Enoch Powell was a member of the uh, the Conservative Party in Britain who warned about this in 1968. Yeah, yeah, yeah Meyer probably wrote to him, too. So he, he actually talked about it and was essentially drummed out of politics mm-hmm. in many ways because he had said this. So much of, most of the stuff that's happening, they, they already know it's going to happen, so they take advantage of it, no. do it to people. So I guess you would come down on the side of Stein and Nigel Farage. Stein says, Germany et al. are declaring the interests of untold millions of quote-unquote refugees trump the interests of their own citizens. Farage says, we've sent out a message to the world that anyone can come. That's why they're coming. I don't know why that, exactly why they're doing that. I have to still think, give some more thought on that, but I, I think they're being told to do it. Yeah. Somebody. Well, when everyone was talking about the refugee crisis in uh, Syria last fall, the United Nations, not not me, not Ezra Levant, the United Nations, we covered it at the rebel.media, uh, but the United Nations came out talking about this so-called Syrian refugee crisis that was sweeping Britain, especially Germany, and only one out of four were from Syria. The rest were from countries around the world. Economic and, and, and more, Exactly. And more than 70% were single men. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was not, you know, the, the people that, most of the people that we're bringing from Syria, even though they're not coming from camps, are probably going to be just fine. Even though we do have to be concerned about ISIS and the like trying to sneak their people in, they're probably going to be fine. But we're talking about families, not whoever shows up. That's what Europe has decided to do. Whoever shows up. The mistake people made is people think that things aren't planned in advance. There are things happening today that were planned 70 years ago. Same like in World War II and World War I. Some of the battles that were fought, they were already planned uh, 80, 90 years in advance. I'll get into this after the break, George, but uh, some of the um, planning that went into the... um, the planning and the millions upon millions of dollars from the United States that went into uh, the Canadian environmental movement mm. from American foundations. We'll get into that after the break. Thanks you for the call, my friend. Gloria in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Hello. Good evening, Brian. Always good to talk to you. Well, What's up? And mine, too. My side, too. <laughs> Listen, I just want to talk briefly uh, about, uh, this is Trudeau when he was talking, being interviewed by uh, John Moore. And I, I just more or less uh, want to say, I'm not repeating his uh, Trudeau's words exactly, but it comes out more or less like, let's not pretend this is, that this is a state or that they've conquered territory or, or that they have a flag. Well, you know, Earth to Trudeau, this is exactly <laughs> what ISIS has done. Oh. Yeah, I, oh okay, I missed that. I'm going to have to look it up. I heard parts of the interview that um, that uh, John Moore did with Trudeau, but I didn't hear that part. I'll, no. I will look it up because um, <laughs> I, I, now I want to hear it. Yeah. I, I like I don't know what section was in it was just a, a little pieces of it that were played uh, I think it was yesterday mm-hmm. uh, and you know the thing is I mean 
Trudeau, I mean, first of all, ISIS, they're nothing but mass murderers. And, and, and the, you know, this is something you have said many times, that they've declare, declared war on religious minorities like, your, you know, the Christians of Yazidis and, and, and the Shias. Mm-hmm. And for, well, in, in this man that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. murdered in Glasgow, he's an Ahmadiyya Muslim. <laughs> so right off the bat, he's an apostate and evil to begin with because yes. he's the wrong type of Muslim to them. This and, is and, it. And, and some some people will listen to me, Gloria, and think, well, Brian's just trying to be politically correct by constantly bringing up that Muslims are attacked. No, I bring it up for a reason, mm-hmm. and that is because this is to show how brutal they are. Very if brutal. you don't agree with them on That's everything, right. you're done. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, the thing is, like, like you said, I'm just putting it in different words, what you said, the only reason— that they will kill you is is because you don't believe in their twisted version of religion, you know? And this is what uh, amazes me. This is about Trudeau. ISIS has openly declared war on Canada, but Trudeau refuses to call it a war. He'd rather have it, call it a fight, because it's not as harsh and, you know, it's... uh, sunny days but uh, i'll tell you they sh- he should spell the days d-a-z-e not d-a-y-s well, i keep saying when people say uh sunny ways that they're mispronouncing it uh for true though it's sunny <laughs> I ways agree. s-n-u-n-n-i yes and that leaves out the shias the amadeas and Everybody else, Everybody it, else. It, it you know plays into the hands of un- unfortunately the, the wahhabist and the cephalists hello Hello. Oh, you there? I'm yep. sorry. My something on the phone. Listen, the, the, I will just close with this. The scariest thing to me is that Trudeau is the leader of this country, but he refuses to admit the dangerous threat that that ISIS is to Canada and all Canadians. You know, he he is uh, really to me a scary person. All right, but never put it down to him being stupid or ignorant, Gloria. Always remember. Mm-hmm. That is brought about by his political ideology and his world view. That's well, what well, informs it. We've got to leave it there. Thanks for the call. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to gin- jump in on the conversation? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Back after this. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So, as we got to the end of that last section, Gloria was talking talking about Justin Trudeau's interview with John Moore at News Talk 1010 in Toronto. Overall, not a bad interview. I don't know if you heard the whole thing. It's up on SoundCloud on the News Talk 1010 page there, and you can find it. Um, John takes a similar view to doing a sit-down interview as I do. You're not going to be rude to the person, and you're going to try and get information out of them. That's the goal of an interview. The goal of an interview is not to sit down and punch somebody over the head and make them say, yes, I'm a bad person, or whatever. You you don't give people noogies in an interview when you're doing a sit-down. So it's a wide-ranging interview over 10 minutes. It's the best that you can do. 
he asked them about the budget. He asked them about the deficit. And then they get into the war on terror. And is it a war on terror? Is it a war? Is it a fight? What have you? Trudeau went on to describe why it's not a fight. I want to move to the war on terror. And listen, you and I were both trained by Jesuits. So I kind of get what you're talking about when you say Canada is not at war with ISIS. I don't think the average person understands that as anything other than this sort of equivocation. I mean, I, I get it. Well, you're you know, saying it's have, not a we've war. We've had 10 but... years, 10 years of a right wing government that focuses on trying to scare people. And we saw that during the election campaign. And we saw people uh, react very strongly to it. Uh, the, the folks I talk to across the country uh, want to know that Canada is taking this fight seriously, is uh, part of the significant international efforts, which we absolutely are, uh, to both uh, go at it militarily by training up local folks uh, right. by being humanitarian, by, by on the refugee side. But why side. goof around with the wording then? Why not just say, yeah, we're at war? Well, because you know what? Uh, ISIL spends its time wanting to amplify its legitimacy, its message. It calls itself a state. Let's not do ISIL's PR work for them. Uh, this is a fight we're against thugs and criminals who are murdering innocents and ch women and children. Let's not pretend they're a state. Let's not pretend they're some army with flags that are going to be able to conquer territory and win a war. This is not a war they can win. This is not a war they want to win. They want to destabilize. They want to uh, break up the fabric of our free and and open societies, and that's what we stand again, and that's why we uh, treat them with both the disdain uh, but and uh, the severity that we do. So, as I often do, I'm going to give Trudeau good marks and bad marks, and I welcome your thoughts on what he had to say there. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Here's where I say I agree with Trudeau. Treat them with disdain. Absolutely. Treat these people with disdain. But when he says they're not a state that is going to conquer territory and that they don't have flags, well, guess what, Mr. Trudeau? They do have a flag. It happens to be something that many Muslims consider, um, I don't know if the right word is holy or sacred, but... They have adopted it as their flag. So they have a flag. And they have conquered territory, taken territory from two different sovereign states, Iraq and Syria. Then they have had groups that have conquered territory, or are at least trying to conquer territory, in other countries pledge allegiance to them. What he is trying to do issues in a 19th century nation-state mentality to say, well, these people aren't a legitimate state because we don't recognize them. I'm, th I'm thinking back to Robin Williams had a great skit on this back in the 80s. You know, how do you recognize the state? Oh, yeah, so I saw you at the, at the Goldblum Bar Mitzvah. Lovely to see you again. Um, you know what? These guys have the territory. They have the money. They have the government structure. So he's wrong on that count. I get him not wanting to do ISIS's PR work for them, or ISIL as he calls them, and, and I actually agree. ISIL is the more correct term. I use ISIS because it's what most people use. But ISIL actually tells you what they want. The Islamic State of Syria and the Levant. The Levant, which st stretches down from Turkey through Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Israel, Egypt, and across North Africa.
That's what they claim to be. When someone tells you who they are, listen to them. But Justin Trudeau says, well, they're not a real state because they they don't have a flag in territory. What? They have a flag and they have territory. And unless we're willing to step up, they will win the war, Mr. Trudeau. The Viet Cong was a small organization. But thanks to the Americans not putting their whole heart into the fight and Walter Cronkite and many other issues, they ended up, the Viet Cong ended up winning that war. Dave in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, uh, Gloria was right, as you've just uh, gone to that interview and shown very, very correctly. I want to go a step further and say that what Trudeau and his party is doing, they are putting our country in grave danger. How? By allowing uh, uh, you know, too much immigration, hopefully they're being careful enough, and you can never be too careful, uh, by taking the Chamberlain kind of view that, oh, you know, they're, they're not, they don't really want to hurt us, and so on. Yes, they do, and they will. And we, he, we had to take it seriously. And besides, are we going to stand by just because they may not be hurting us and let them do what they're doing in other countries? My God, in Pakistan, it was women and children. Yep. Women and children. Now, I, I want to... Boys, boys in, in uh, Iraq playing soccer. A soccer match in Iraq, women and children mostly out in a park on Sunday. In Pakistan. And as uh, our guest, Phil Gursky, said, well, they thought they were targeting Christians, but they ended up killing more Muslims than, than Christians. They probably don't care. They, they don't care because... Well, if you're the type of Muslim that's going to be in public with a Christian, you probably deserve to die would be their view. I mean, uh, the the uh, example uh, you gave of the merchant in, in Glasgow, uh, he, we, we he, had better he wished, watch this. He wished his neighbors, he's loved by his community, by every report, and I know the Shalins district, like I said, my family's near there. He wished his customers and his neighbors a happy Easter, and that was enough for somebody to come in and kill him. Well, you know what that's akin to? Uh, Moa Tala from the, from uh, the, the uh, Moore's restaurant and stuff. I mean, he's very much in tune with this country. He loves this country. Yep. So if they were here, he would be a target. That, this is true. Do people realize that? Well, I, I mean, he, I, I believe he's retired since. But, yeah, but still. He, but he, had, had the jihadi mentality come to Canada when he was running Moe's Newport Restaurant in Westboro, mm-hmm. he'd be in trouble. Well, he still runs the pizza place down at the bottom of Churchill there by Scott. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, people, people like Moe Tyler would, would, would be targets of, of the jihadists. And, so and the, the reason that I bring this up, and I said this to Gloria, Dave, the reason I bring this up and show that this is not just an attack on the West or an attack on Christians or Yazidis is that I'm trying to get people to realize that it doesn't matter if we leave them alone because this is the narrative, and so many of our young people believe it, and so many people that believe in conspiracy theories will believe, well, if we just leave them alone, if we pull our troops out, well, the Americans have troops in Saudi Arabia, and so that's an offense to them. So if we, if we take all that out, then they'll leave us alone. No. No, they I don't won't. Think so. The jihadis, their only agenda is submission or die, and and it doesn't matter if you're Christian, Muslim, Jew, black, white, doesn't matter. You submit to them, or you die. That that's their opening and closing position. Exactly. Nothing more. Nothing less. All right. Thanks for the call, Dave. Take care. 
I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to join in on the conversation? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Back after this. in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Why don't I get that many Christmas cards? Why don't I get invited to all the the cool parties? All right, I'm a pain in their butt, that's why. Oh, well. I guess it's better to be a pain in their butt and be honest. That's, That's what I'm sticking to. Odd little bit in the uh, the U.S. Capitol today. Gunman pulls out a firearm and shoots at U.S. Capitol Police. Now, they say that he's been taken into custody. And the um, Matthew uh, Verderosa, the chief of the U.S. Capitol Police, says, don't worry, everything's going to be just fine. We expect regular order of business tomorrow morning at the Capitol Visit- Visitor Center. So people can safely visit the United States Capitol and their member offices. Now, I love this turn of phrase. Um, I've been hearing it from police forever, but it's a great turn of phrase. Verderosa says the suspect was known to police, meaning eh, we're kind of dealing with a criminal here. But he wouldn't confirm reports it was the same man who disrupted the uh, the House chamber last fall by shouting. So I guess there's some speculation. This guy, eh, he's got some issues going to begin with. But also out of the U.S. today, Josh Ernest is the White House spokesman. He was commenting on the blast in Lahore, Pakistan, carried out by a Taliban sp- uh, splinter group. Yeah, the jihadis are all the same as far as I'm concerned. They have the same goal. But um, Josh Ernest, the White House press secretary, is commenting after a counterterrorism expert said that the the bomb detonated in Lahore was loaded with ball bearings to cause maximum damage. Because as the bomb goes off, all those tiny little ball bearings go out and injure people or kill them in a park filled with families, but mostly women and children. And Ernest was just beside himself. It's grotesque. Uh, And the fact that you have um, an extremist organization targeting religious minorities and children is an outrage. Outrage is the mildest way to put it, but I feel for the position that Josh Ernest is in today There are days when I will call Josh Ernest out. But today, not one of those days. What is he going to say? Really? How can you describe what happened in Lahore, Pakistan in civil language? But he's a spokesman for the White House, so he has to. That's the only way he can speak. The cameras are on. 521 talk, 521 star 580 on Bell Mobility. Peter in Ottawa. You're... Peter was there, and now he disappeared. Okay. 
Well, Peter, if you're listening and you just drop your call, you can call back. But um, I want to play the clip of Justin Trudeau again, talking with, with John Moore. And Moore asks him about this whole thing that came out last week. Trudeau was in Toronto last weekend, or ahead of last weekend. By the way, he spent Easter weekend on Fogo Island in Newfoundland. Now, why why does that matter? Well, all weekend I got news releases saying that Justin Trudeau was in private meetings. See, Trudeau made a big deal about the fact that Stephen Harper would only tell people when he was holding a public event. Other than that, he wouldn't put out a news release saying what his itinerary was for the day. So now Trudeau puts out a daily press release on what his itinerary is. But if it's not a public meeting, you know what it just says? Private meetings. Even if he's off on vacation in another part of the country, it simply says that he's in Ottawa in private meetings. So Saturday, was it Friday or Saturday? I got a news release. It's in my email like it is every day, the prime minister's itinerary, and it says private meetings, Ottawa. Hmm. Next thing, CBC Newfoundland is tweeting out pictures of Justin and Sophie and the kids getting off the plane in Gander on a quick stop before they hop over to Fogo Island, one of the most exclusive places to vacation in North America, apparently just stunning, and I don't care that he's there. I'm fine that he's there. But don't make a big deal about how you're going to be far more open and transparent. You're going to be so much better than the last guy. And then all you do is you do what the last guy did in that you put out a news release saying when your public events are and for everything else, you say private meetings, Ottawa. Give me a break, but don't worry. Can we get the cheering again? Justin Trudeau is number 48. We can forget about any bad thing because... World greatest leaders is 48. I'm sorry, Canada being 48th in anything, or the leader of Canada being 48th in anything, that's not something to cheer about, but they were. Anyways, back to John Moore. My old friend and colleague, John Moore at News Talk 1010 down in Toronto, interviewing the Prime Minister of all the Canadas, and he asked him about the whole issue of is it a war? Are we at war with radical Islam? Are we not? And I want you to listen closely to what Trudeau has to say. I want to move to the war on terror. And listen, you and I were both trained by Jesuits. So I kind of get what you're talking about when you say Canada is not at war with ISIS. I don't think the average person understands that as anything other than this sort of equivocation. I mean, I, I get it. Well, you're you saying know, it's have, not a we've war. We've had 10, but... years, 10 years of a right-wing government that focuses on trying to scare people, and we saw that during the election campaign, and we saw people uh, react very strongly to it. Uh, the, the folks I talk to across the country uh, want to know that Canada is taking this fight seriously, is uh, part of the significant international efforts, which we absolutely are, uh, to both uh, go at it militarily by training up local folks uh, right. by being humanitarian, by, by on the refugee side. But why side. goof around with the wording then? Why not just say, yeah, we're at war? Well, because you know what? 
Uh, ISIL spends its time wanting to amplify its legitimacy, its message. It calls itself a state. Let's not do ISIL's PR work for them. Uh, this is a fight we're against thugs and criminals who are murdering innocents and ch- women and children. Let's not pretend they're a state. Let's not pretend they're some army with flags that are going to be able to conquer territory and win a war. This is not a war they can win. This is not a war they want to win. They want to destabilize. They want to uh, break up the fabric of our free and and open societies, and that's what we stand again, and that's why we uh, treat them with both the disdain uh, but and uh, the severity that we do. My only criticism of John Moore in there is his, we were both trained by Jesuits, so I get what you're saying, but the average person may not. John, you know you sound a little condescending there. You know that you do. Um, it's a big deal to go to a Jesuit school in Montreal, and the Jesuits are famous for their educational uh, techniques and the fact that, uh, I mean, they are the type of people that can debate how many angels will dance on the head of a pen. That's fantastic. But Trudeau, Trudeau in there said things that were both true and untrue in his answer. He wasn't Jesuitical in his reply to you. He rightly said that ISIS should be held in disdain, but he wrongly said that they do not have a flag and they don't capture territory. They have a flag. They have captured territory. And they and the rest of the jihadist monsters that are out there don't give two flying fox farts about what a Jesuit might say about any of this. They only care, will you submit, will you not? Will you submit to their view of Islam? Will you not? And so if you're a Ahmadiyya Muslim shopkeeper in Glasgow that wishes his customers a happy Easter, you will be killed. If you are the type of Muslim that will go out on an Easter Sunday in Lahore, Pakistan, and celebrate Easter with your neighbors who are just going on rides and playing in a park, you will be killed. And if you're the type of Muslim that's going to go to a soccer game in Baghdad, you will be killed. Don't think for a moment that they only care about killing the infidels. They care about killing anyone that does not believe what they believe. This is the horror that we are confronting. This is what we are dealing with. Anyone that tells you anything different is lying to you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back tomorrow on News Talk 580 CFRA.